first scripture reading is from Ezekiel 36, verses 22 to 27. Ezekiel 36. Key uh, passage in understanding the difference between the Old and the New Covenant and the work of the Holy Spirit in that regard. From verse 22. Therefore say to the house of Israel, thus says the Lord God, it is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I am about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. And I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Then the nations will know that I am the Lord, declares the Lord God, when I prove myself holy among you in their sight. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart, And put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh, and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you, and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. Would you then turn to John chapter 6? And I'll read from verses 35 to 45, John 6, and the text for the sermon is verses 43 to 45. After that, I'll read from the Westminster Confession. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall not hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me shall come to me, and the one who comes to me I will certainly not cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him may have eternal life. And I myself will raise him up on the last day. The Jews therefore were grumbling about him because he said, I am the bread that came down out of heaven. And they were saying, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down out of heaven? Now a text, Jesus answered and said to them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. And I will raise him up on the last day. 
It is written in the prophets, and they shall all be taught of God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the, from the Father comes to me. And then uh, also from the Westminster Confession, you should find the first two articles of chapter 10 in your bulletin. This uh, is a chapter on effectual calling. Article 1. All those whom God hath predestinated unto life, and those only, he is pleased in his appointed and accepted time effectually to call by his word and spirit out of that state of sin and death in which they are by nature to grace and salvation by Jesus Christ, enlightening their minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God, taking away their heart of stone and giving unto them a heart of flesh, renewing their wills and by his almighty power, determining them to that which is good and effectually drawing them to Jesus Christ. Yet so, as they come most freely, being made willing by his grace. And Article 2, this effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in man, who is altogether passive therein, until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit, he is thereby enabled to answer this call and to embrace the grace offered and conveyed in it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have set us free, free to receive your word, free to understand it, free to embrace it, and free to respond to it with praise and thanks and trust and obedience. Lord, would you grant that we may exercise that freedom again this afternoon as we sit under the ministry of your word and that it may have that effect upon us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Covenant people of God, when in reform circles we talk about irresistible grace, the eye of a tulip, we frequently understand it as applying to the work of the Holy Spirit. And uh, when we go through this in catechism class, uh, trying to uh, give the students something that they can... Uh, perhaps uh, remember a little more easily than some of the heavier doctrinal formulations. I usually put it to them this way, the Holy Spirit always gets his man, uh, something along those lines. That's perhaps a neat way of expressing this doctrine, but as you would be aware, there's a lot more to it, a lot uh, deeper to it than that. And uh, this, is, um, this work, as we understand this point about irresistible grace in Tulip, it is as I said, something that we particularly think of in terms of the work of the Holy Spirit and especially his work in the effectual calling of uh, those who are called to faith and uh, also in the work of regeneration. And the illustration that's often used in that connection is uh, that of 
the birth of a child, physical birth of a child. The baby has no say in it, as it's often said, and the baby takes no credit for it, its own birth, and it is, in fact, carried along by a process in which the baby is more or less passive. And uh, so it is with the new birth. It is uh, that birth of the baby illustration is quite a good illustration of it. However, what I want to point out this afternoon, because it's very much in the Westminster, in this article on the effectual call, these articles, is that the eye of Tulip does not only have to do with the work of the Holy Spirit. The work of the Father is also very much involved in this. And the work of the Son is also very much involved in this. And we see that in this article, this chapter 10 in the Westminster, which mentions in some ways the work of the Father and the work of the Son more than explicitly talking about the work of the Spirit, uh, because the article talks about predestination and it talks about election, the work of the Father. And uh, you see that in, especially in uh, the, uh, both articles 1 and 2, and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in article 1. And so it is with this text that the work of the triune God is very much in view, the work of all three persons very much in view in what the Lord Jesus is explaining to the crowd of people. And we look at that under three headings this afternoon. First of all, the drawing of the elect. Secondly, the teaching of the elect. And thirdly, the certain outcome for the elect. So we're talking here about irresistible grace, the eye of tulip, and under those three headings, the drawing of the elect, the teaching of the elect, and the certain outcome for the elect. In the first place, then, we find the Lord Jesus confronting a hostile crowd, and the crowd of people, they're grumbling, they're murmuring against the Lord because they did not appreciate this claim that he made to be the bread that came down from heaven. And instead of arguing them immediately on that point, the Lord Jesus goes back to something else that he had been talking about uh, previously, uh, and it's something that in a way explains why it is that the people are grumbling. So rather than arguing about the, the bread from heaven statement at that point, he implicitly explains why they're not receiving what he's saying, why they're rejecting it. And he does that by saying that, uh, or implying that they have not been drawn to him by the Father and they have not been taught of God and it's for that reason that they're not able to lay hold of this teaching about the bread from heaven. And what he says in that connection is a very, very significant point about the necessity of being drawn by the Father. That you cannot come to the Lord Jesus unless you are drawn to him by the Father. It is absolutely impossible. And in terms of the understanding of the Reformed faith, in terms of the understanding of the scripture on these points, this is really an, a very, very significant point. Now many see that drawing as nothing more than a, a gentle persuasion or a kind of moral influence by which God does what he can to urge sinners to come to the Lord Jesus but at the crunch, he has to leave it to their free will. That's a fairly standard Arminian view. And since it is a matter of free will, the argument goes, that's really all that God can do. 
that he can only uh, seek to win over sinners in that way by that kind of encouragement and persuasion and uh, leaving them at the end uh, having to make that decision virtually unaided, apart from that gentle encouragement, unaided by him that it has to come down to their free will. The problem with this is something that the Westminster has been labouring over for several chapters. Think back to chapter 6, we worked through that previously on the fall, and there we were told that the natural man is dead in his sin, and he is wholly defiled. And if he is wholly defiled, then his will, that which would lead him to come to the Lord Jesus and desire to come to the Lord Jesus, that will is dead in sin like the rest of him because he is wholly defiled. Chapter 7 went on to say, talking about the, the doctrine of the covenant, that the fall has left the natural man incapable, incapable of life by uh, trying to stick to a covenant of works. So that he needs the Holy Spirit in order to make him able to believe and willing to believe. And then chapter 9 on free will, telling us that the result of the fall, that the natural man has wholly lost all ability to will to any spiritual good. And he cannot convert himself in his own strength. In fact, the opposite, he is altogether averse from spiritual good. And that is why he needs to be drawn. And that is why that drawing needs to be more than some kind of gentle suggestion. It needs to be stronger than that because of the deadness that man and his will lie in. Well, as you might expect, those who want to lift up man's free will and give something to man here, they have their own interpretation of this word, drawn. And they have this idea very often that God's drawing of people to his son is nothing more than that general and gentle persuasion and influence. The problem is that with that argument that this word, the word that's used here translated drawn, is a word that means something effectual. It's a word that might be used, for example, in drawing a sword in the middle of a battle and you don't sit there saying to the sword, now, sword, I'd like you to come to my hand of your own free will and so I'd like to persuade you to do that because, hey, I'm in the middle of a battle here. Come on, sword, please come. No, it's not a gentle persuasion. You draw the sword out. And the same word, which, by the way, can also be used and translated drag, so again, an, an idea of something effectual, uh, where something is taken and brought to a certain position effectually. You find that word also translated that way in Acts 16 verse 19 about Paul and Silas being dragged from the marketplace into the marketplace. And Acts 21:30, the apostle Paul being dragged out of the temple, same word as what we find in our text. And I don't know if you, any of you who have read a little bit of uh, C.S. Lewis, you might uh, know a little bit about his uh, story. You might uh, be aware, and it might, this might make you think immediately of his description of his conversion, where he described himself as being dragged into the kingdom of God, kicking and screaming. However, it does not always feel like it did to Lewis. Doesn't always feel like such a struggle. Becoming a Christian doesn't always feel like it's with kicking and screaming. 
For behind the scenes, and that's what we really are talking about here, behind the scenes, whatever, however you may feel it and experience conversion uh, at uh, some point as a Christian, uh, however you might psychologically experience that, what is going on behind the scenes as God works in us is not something that uh, does violence to the will, not dragging in that sense that you've got this resistant will that simply does not want to be believing in the Lord Jesus, does not want to come to the Lord Jesus, and God somehow forces that will uh, all the way objecting, but nevertheless having no choice in it, simply having to uh, be dragged there. That's not what is going on behind the scenes. Uh, In fact, what is going on behind the scenes is that God heals the will, he restores the will, he uh, renews the will and gives life to it so that the will desires the Lord Jesus Christ and wants to come to him, which is very different than being forced to do something you don't want to do. We talked about that the other week. And that's why the Canons of Dort in speaking about this Uh, in the third and fourth head of doctrine, Article 16, talks about God sweetly and powerfully bending the will. Not talking about violently breaking it or violently forcing it, but powerfully bending a term that means more than gentle persuasion, which is needed because the will otherwise is dead in sin, and yet at the same time sweetly and powerfully bending Because it is not by some harsh force, but by restoring and healing the will so that we want to come to the Lord Jesus. So how does God draw us? Well, not only by the work of the Holy Spirit, as I said at the beginning, but even the fact that God predestines us to life. That is a powerful and sovereign decree that must be effectual. And then he gives us to his son, to the Lord Jesus, who actually and powerfully accomplishes our salvation. And that too must have its effect. It must be effectual. And the son then sends his word and his spirit, according to the father's will, the spirit to dwell in us and, as I mentioned, to change our heart, our mind and our will to give us new life, also a powerful work that must be effectual. The result, the renewed will, healed, restored, not ignored by God in this process, not broken down and destroyed in this process or violently forced to do the opposite of what it really desires, but healed and restored so that it desires God, it desires the Lord Jesus. And that's why uh, John Murray, in an article he wrote on irresistible grace, used language like this. He talked about insurmountable grace. You cannot overcome it. Invincible efficacy, another term he used, and my favourite, invincible attraction. A nice term for this process, invincible attraction by which God restores us and heals us so that finally the will is able to be attracted to the Lord Jesus and wants nothing else. 
And uh, so this is certainly not a, it is a work of the triune God, but it is not a work of some tyrannical force coming into our lives like an invading army and forcing this and that to happen against the will of the people. But it is a powerful yet sweet change and restoration that is so wonderful that we cannot but help to be attracted to it, to the Lord Jesus, and we don't want to resist. Now, if I can use an illustration of that, it's, uh, you often hear this when, when two people fall in love, and sometimes you hear this kind of talk that uh, they can't help it. They can't help their feelings. And uh, they even sing about it. I can't help falling in love with you. I'm not going to sing the song, but the, those titles that are common in the uh, music world and the uh, entertainment world of today, that there's something that you can't help and you can't possibly do without the other person. And you don't hear them complaining about some violent act against their will in that uh, as if they're saying, well, I married this person. Uh, I was forced to, sort of like a shotgun wedding, I was forced to marry this person against my will. I was dragged up to the altar and forced to do that. They don't talk that way because this is what they want because they love the person. And so it is here with our relationship with God, not being violently forced to love, but here we deal with an even greater love than that between husband and wife, that invincible attraction that God has thankfully created in us so that finally, rather than being forced, we're actually free to be attracted to him and to love him as we ought to be doing. Well, a similar point is made in verse 45 with the quote from Isaiah 54, 13 and Jeremiah 31, verse 34, that they shall all be taught of God. Our second point the teaching of the elect. And again, we shouldn't think of this in the, uh, the general uh, encouragement uh, sphere as if this is like attending a public lecture or perhaps attending a university lecture where the lecturer is trying to persuade people by human reason or by uh, his rhetorical ability or whatever else and, but it's, it's really up to you at the end of the day, as someone sitting in the lecture room, you can agree or you can disagree. It's really up to you. Now, the teaching that is being talked about here is effectual teaching that comes from God himself. And we see this in the fact that the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, there was this prophecy, these verses I mentioned, a prophecy of a future time where the teaching of God's people would be so much better than it had been to that point by God's purpose and plan. In the Old Testament, the sons of Israel were certainly being taught by God, though at that stage, uh, much of that was taking place at the outward level, for example, through the teaching of the prophets, but not many were listening. And so the prophets were told about a change that was coming in the new covenant when the Lord Jesus came, when all their sons would be taught by the Lord himself in such a way that the laws would be put, the law would be put on their hearts, effectual teaching of the whole person. In such a way that they would now have God teach them that they would know him from the heart. Effectual teaching. We read about it in Ezekiel 36. And Jeremiah 31 is similar. Speaking of the time 
when the Lord Jesus would accomplish salvation for all of the elect and send forth his word and his spirit to teach his people more effectually in their hearts. This is the background to what the Lord Jesus says, what he goes on to say in verse 45b, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father, this true inner effectual teaching, in other words, comes to me. Every one of them. Truly effectual. And something that is inevitable. They will come and they do come. It is inevitable because this is the will of the Father. It is the accomplishment of the Son, the result of His work, and the purpose for which He sends out His Word and His Spirit to work in the lives of the elect. Note the two things that are being said here. You cannot come to the Lord Jesus without the Father drawing you, and without the Father teaching you. And you cannot be drawn and taught by the Father without coming to the Lord Jesus Christ as a result. And there is no way those two points can be strewed, construed along Arminian lines as God just speaking persuasively and then leaving it up to man's free will to decide. This is talking about invincible attraction. The effectuality of this work is also seen in the final outcome it has for the elect. Our third and final point. The certain outcome for the elect. That outcome is seen in verse 45, where the Lord says that uh, um, he gives it to everyone who has heard and learned from the Father that uh, they come to the Lord Jesus, as I mentioned, a certain effect. But also then looking even further, verse 44, verse B, the Lord Jesus says that he will raise up on the last day all of those who are drawn by the Father. All of them. He doesn't put it this way. He doesn't say, the Father's going to seek to draw sinners to himself and he'll teach them outwardly with his word and seek to persuade them by his Holy Spirit. But then it still depends on man's free will choice. But if the sinner makes the right choice, then he will come to Christ and having come to Christ, if he continues to make the right choice, then yes, I will raise him up on the last day. The Lord Jesus does not speak that way. He speaks about the elect who are definitely going to come and they are definitely going to be raised up on the last day because it does not depend on them. Nor is it merely a matter of God looking into the future and foreseeing who will believe of his own free will. Westminster talks about that in the second article here. Now we are talking here about the Father's gift, the Father's drawing, the Father's teaching, the Son's accomplishment and the Spirit's application. And as we saw last week, if that were all left up to man at the crunch, there would be no guarantee anyone would come to Christ, there would be no guarantee anyone would remain with Christ and there is no guarantee that they would all be raised up on the last day. But God is giving a guarantee. Jesus is giving a guarantee here. They will come, they will stay, and they will be raised up on the last day. Let's go back to our baby illustration. This is an Armenian baby, and he's a very uh, clever baby as well. And he says, uh, 
I am so thankful that I was conceived of my own will and my own doing. I am so glad that I brought myself up in the world. I am so glad that I raised myself and I fully educated myself. And I am so glad that when I die, I will raise myself up to heaven. All of it by my own initiative, my own free will and my own work with, admittedly, some encouragement from the Lord. For if we do not put it that way, then someone might say that baby does not have freedom of will. And who would want to say that? Well, of course, that scenario is a ridiculous one. It doesn't happen that way in ordinary life, and certainly not with spiritual life, where those who are dead in their trespasses and sins utterly depend on the Father's drawing and the Son's accomplishment and the Word's instruction and the Holy Spirit's renewing grace. Which is the point that's made by the term and by the doctrine irresistible grace. It is not saying that uh, no man is capable of resisting any of God's grace for clearly unbelievers reject the display of God's grace every single day. It's not saying that, not denying that. The point is that this particular work of grace, where uh, the, those who are elected and for whom the Lord Jesus died, hear the call of the gospel and receive the regenerating work of the Spirit in such a way that it cannot be resisted. Not by the elect, not at that time when God chooses to draw them to himself. And when that does happen, then those, the elect, those people are enabled finally to understand just how attractive the gospel is, that it is too attractive to resist, that is to say, once our hearts are healed and restored. Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, in this doctrine of irresistible grace and the effectuality of the call that you have to the elect at a certain point in their lives, this invincible attraction. We see not the ability or the initiative or the work of man, but your infinite sovereignty and grace. And therefore, Father, we are moved not to pride or self-congratulation, but to boast all the more in you. Father, we thank you also for the assurance we have from your work that we do not need to despair as we would if we were left with our own wills and if it depended on us. Father, we thank you that it all depends on you and on the work of your Son and the work of your Word and Spirit. And we thank you for that in Jesus' name. Amen.